Recording in progress. Good evening. I'd like to call to order the Shoreline Planning Commission regular meeting for Thursday, September 21st, 2023. First item will be roll call. Ms. Hoaxma. Commissioner Brinson. Here. Commissioner Callahan. Here. Commissioner Galuska. Present. Commissioner Lynn. Here. Commissioner Mosier. Here. Uh, Vice Chair Wamashonje. Present. And Chair Sager. Here. Thank you. All right, next item is approval of the agenda. Does anybody have any changes for the agenda? Great. Uh, next is approval of the minutes from August 3rd and September 7th, both 2023. Does anybody have any additions, questions, comments? Excellent. That brings us to general public comment. Uh, Ms. Hoxma, is there anybody signed up for general public comment tonight? Well, I did have someone that was going to uh, attend, but they're not here, so we have none at this point. Thank okay. you. Okay, great. Thank you. All right, we are on to our study item, which is Ground Floor Commercial Development Code Amendments. Take it away, Mr. Bauer. All right, thank you. Uh, so we are here to speak with you about the Ground Floor Commercial Development Code Amendments, as you say. Um, and so I've got here tonight with me Nate Dom, our Economic Development Program Manager, um, and I'll let him introduce Patrick here to his right. Thank you, Andrew, and good evening, Chair Sager and members of the Commission. As Andrew said, I'm the Economic Development Program Manager for the city, um, and in that role I get to see a lot of the interest out there, and it's really clear that our marketing, uh, in our market positioning and our regulatory conditions are very attractive to development in general. Um, and in fact, at the State of the Seattle Market Conference that I went to this morning, I was told by an architect that our promotional video made him laugh. And of course, that made me deeply uncomfortable until he clarified um, that we don't need a promotional video. He said everyone wants to do a project in Shoreline. So we have a lot of good good things going for us. And um, and I'm glad we have Patrick Doherty. He's our consultant um, on this work and uh, has a bachelor's in urban planning, a master's in urban and regional planning, and recently retired from a career in public service. Uh, including six years as the Director of Economic Development and Community Services for the City of Edmonds. Before that, he, uh, at the City of Federal Way, over the course of, I think, 13 years, Patrick uh, served as the Director of Economic Development, the Deputy Director of the Community Development Services Department, and Director of Community and Economic Development. Um, I don't know if there's any other ways you can combine those, but you, you think you did them all. He also worked for the City of Seattle, Department of Construction and Land Use for 15 years. 17, 17 uh, in roles ranging from associate planner to manager of the design review program. So he's helped us draw upon the work of the planning commission in this area and council over the past few years, um, as well as his considerable experience with mixed use policy planning and implementation. And, um, you know, we began this work, I think, as you're all aware, with a significant pipeline of multifamily projects emerging in the city's commercial areas, with many of them, including no commercial. Uh, space in their plans, and so um, we uh, wanted to obviously address that, and I think everybody here knows about that. It, and our city originally developed as a bedroom community, of course, with kind of limited local services, 
yet over the years our guiding documents and adopted policies have sought to address that jobs housing imbalance and to see it as such and certain examples are the uh, increase in inventory of business spaces per the uh, 2018 to 2023 economic development strategic plan um, and of course the city's adopted employment growth target of 10,000 jobs which we talk about all the time as the 10,000 jobs thing what are we going to do about the 10,000 jobs so those are some of the just highlights for reasons why we're here and the staff report details a longer list of all the different policy objectives that this discussion touches um, and I think you know ultimately we hope that future development cycles the urban walkable mixed-use development that we're hopefully achieving today will help create the condition for a wider array of development tomorrow but at present it really is that multifamily development again that I hear about at the conference this morning you know things like that that's creating those conditions and we hope we can kind of keep that investment coming our way strike the right balance of incentives and, and, and requirements to guide that investment in a way that meets the community's needs. And I'm very excited to get into that conversation with all of you, and I'll try to do a lot less talking from this point forward and hand it over to Patrick to kick us off. I'm to or to Andrew. Sure. Sorry. <laughs> all right, thanks, Nate. Uh, so and if one of you could either, you can either slide that over or yeah just yeah so I'm just gonna give a very brief overview there's a lot of content in the staff report tonight and so um, I think I mentioned this topic that was coming forward to you at your retreat and then a couple of weeks ago or I guess a couple of meetings ago also but uh, so as you know the um, the current regulations that we have related to ground floor commercial were adopted in 2020 and at that time, a lot of the adopting documents and the analysis notes that it was intended to be a pilot. And so um, really it, uh, it was focused to the Ridgecrest and North City neighborhoods and uh, related specifically to new apartment developments or new multifamily developments within those areas. Um, and so, however, we've seen, of course, since 2020 and probably beyond, you know, continued growth and new developments throughout the city and not just in Ridgecrest and in North City. So on June 5th, the council took action by adopting interim regulations that apply citywide to all commercial zones as well as the NUR 70 zone, which is the most intensive zone closest to the station areas. Um, if you could go to the next slide, please. Uh, this just shows visually where those two areas apply in the Ridgecrest and North City areas. So uh, Ridgecrest is on your left there and applies primarily at the corner where the Crest Theater is. Um, and there's a coffee shop, the Drumlin and the Ridgecrest uh, pub are right there as well on the northeast corner. And then on the right is the North City area, which is focused along the 15th corridor. Next slide, please. So uh, just real quickly of what those existing regulations say, uh, they apply to all of the community business zoned properties within that, uh, that overlay area uh, within the two neighborhoods. They prohibit some less desirable uses uh, called out specifically. They identify how the space should be designed related to the average minimum depth, um, the, the floor to ceiling height, 
They uh, talk about the, uh, the ground floor transparency related to the facade and then also how much of that ground floor facade needs to be occupied by the ground floor commercial space. And then also outlined the parking requirement, which is one per 400 square feet. It also allows uh, an exception for fitness centers that are associated with a multifamily building, but that are open and accessible to the public and offer membership to count toward the meeting the requirement. Next slide, please. Uh, these are just some examples of what a typical mixed-use building looks like. Um, we've got the GEO building there on the bottom right, which is just up the street from here on Midvale, which includes a ground floor commercial space. Um, and are these other, the, yeah, the line right there, which is uh, going up on 145th. That's on the left-hand side there. Um, I'm, I don't, Grand Peaks. Grand Peaks, okay, great. Um, so some uh, specific examples to Shoreline. Next slide. Um, and then in the North City area, under the permanent regulations, we've seen one development so far come in, and that's uh, shown on the screen here. Uh, it's including 4,300 square feet of ground floor commercial space. They'll be breaking ground here uh, shortly. They've, If you've been by the area, they've demolished all the buildings and the site's more or less ready to go. Uh, the, um, and then the other examples on the previous slide and elsewhere throughout the city have voluntarily included that ground floor commercial space. Next slide, please. Uh, the lessons learned so far as it relates to the, uh, the Ridgecrest and North City areas, I'll hit on quickly if you can flip to the next slide. So the height bonus, um, as it relates to the ground floor commercial space, we have a restaurant ready uh, bonus for additional height. And so oftentimes those restaurant spaces require a little additional ceiling height. And so there's more flexibility granted to the overall building height. However, you know, you can only go so high with, with wood frame construction before the building code tips you into that wood frame and steel construction type, which is often more costly. I think we did a deeper dive on this topic specifically when you were looking at the MUR 70 amendments last year. Uh, so oftentimes you need to go much, much higher to where that construction type really pencils out to actually be able to build uh, a, a feasible development. Uh, and then as it relates to the fitness center allowance, uh, the North City development that's going through the, uh, or that will be breaking ground, did utilize this exception. We'll be interested to see how that plays out, if it truly functions the way it's maybe intended in the code. This is, as it's written, a difficult provision to enforce and implement. Um, it's very possible that this looks and feels and functions very similar to any other apartment amenity fitness space. And so be interested as we get into this topic in more detail what the commission's uh, thoughts are around this specific exception and if it's really uh, achieving the outcome that we're wanting to hit here. And then last relates, um, oh, I'm sorry, the, yeah, this is uh, actually the, the plan view for the North City site and you can see the fitness space on the right there 
And so they were able to count that toward meeting their 75% ground floor frontage requirement. They do, however, have a restaurant ready space. It's in the retail one location on the left side of the screen. Uh, and then the lobby space in the blue is an area that doesn't count toward meeting the 75%. And then last, we have the parking requirement. And parking, of course, is always a difficult topic to balance and to uh, try to hit right. It's not a perfect science, as you know. Uh, recent example here, which is outside of the North City and Ridgecrest areas, but it's adjacent to the 185th station where the developer was actually proposing a, a small uh, coffee shop space, about 1,200 square feet. As you can see on the map, it's directly across the street from the 185th station and a couple of other key developments that are in the pipeline, as well as the city's Rotary Park there. Ultimately, the parking requirement is what did that space in, and the developer kind of threw their hands up after trying to go through a couple of different iterations of trying to make it work, and they just converted the space back to residential because that parking requirement was difficult to meet, uh, which is, in many respects, a missed opportunity because you're right next to the light rail station, you're right next to those other uh, amenities and, and developments. So. Parking is one topic that we'll probably be doing a much deeper dive on and talking through as we get into this more. And so with that, that's an overview of the current regulations as they exist right now, and I'll turn it over to Patrick. Okay, hi, good evening. And uh, I think there's a couple other things that are basically kind of background, but um, maybe we don't have to touch upon them too much. The, the interim regulations, uh, we touched upon that already, right? Yeah. Uh, I would just say, and this is more for anybody who's ultimately watching this online or whatever, that there's copious co comprehensive plan support in your comprehensive plan for mixed-use villages, mixed-use development types, the, this kind of commercial. So in your packet, you have an attachment that has all the, the many policies there are uh, related to that, which is great. So first, uh, one of the issues that we discussed early on was um, and this comes from my experience in Seattle, especially, where people would uh, assume that it had to be, well, usually they'd say retail, but certainly commercial. And there are many other things than just purely commercial that can happen in, in these spaces. Uh, you can have uh, civic-type uses. You can have libraries. There's some examples of that. You could have nonprofit agencies. Um, you could have clubs. You could have all sorts of things that are not specifically commercial. And so to send the message maybe that it's ex as expansive as possible, we just propose that maybe we say non-residential regarding these requirements, uh, just the non-residential space. Um, so that's the first issue that we, we addressed. Um, but that's, that's a small one. Another uh, kind of new idea is the following, and it comes out of the issue that I'm sure you've seen in the region uh, if you travel through Seattle where there's been so many of these buildings built over the decades. You'll see vacant space. You'll wonder, well, gee, do we really need all this, this commercial quote-unquote commercial non-residential space. And sometimes it's on a street that's still emerging as a commercial corridor, hasn't quite gotten there yet. So we thought of the idea of kind of primary and secondary commercial corridors and just look to your transportation master plan that already has uh, the principal and minor arterials uh, indicated. And you have that in your packet, and we can show it as well in here. And we were thinking, well, the existing regulations or however they're uh, amended now, with the 
of the ground floor being in, in non-residential, for example, should probably continue to be on the primary commercial corridors, which is the principal and minor arterials. But as a building turns a corner, or maybe it's a large site and it has a side street, or it's just on a smaller street that isn't very commercial yet, perhaps the regulation should be right-sized a little bit less. So there's a lesser requirement, still some, but a lesser requirement, uh, recognizing that those streets maybe aren't as robust, and you don't want to encourage a lot of people to have uh, vacant space for years. So that's one of our items. Uh, regarding the ground floor, uh, as I just kind of mentioned a moment ago, uh, the current requirement is 75%. We don't really see there's any reason to change that for the principal commercial corridors. But perhaps on those secondary streets that are not principal and minor arterials, there could be the less requirement of, say, 60% instead of 75 The depth of space, this is kind of a minor issue, but I've seen it in many buildings through the years. Uh, the average depth is 30 feet in your current requirement. That's a very reasonable amount. Uh, oftentimes, developers will do more, but that's a, that's a minimum that I think does make sense based on experience. And then you um, have a, an absolute minimum of 20. I think it may be reasonable to consider a little bit less, say 15. Uh, there are, I can't tell you how many times architects or design teams would say, oh gosh, we've got this, this electrical closet and this elevator and this whatever, and we can't quite always have 50, uh, 20. If you'd let us have 15 in one place, we'll go further back in another place. But so just a little more, more built-in uh, flexibility might make some sense. And then the height. Now, this is an issue that gets a lot of attention. In the uh, pilot ordinance that you have for North City and Ridgecrest, you have a rather high requirement of 18 feet. I have really not found that in any other city uh, other than downtowns of major cities like downtown San Francisco or Seattle. Um, the interim ordinance went the other direction, and it's only 12 feet, which is pretty low. Um, and so I've done some research, and also your planning staff has done over the years, and um, there is a pretty solid line of cities that are 12 to 15, kind of leaning a little bit higher, 13 to 15. Um, and as you would imagine, that more generous height, getting 15 or maybe more, is uh, what allows for that wide range of uses over the life of the building. Now, we talked about restaurant ready, um, and it doesn't have to be 18. Some really want that, but if you go to any of the small restaurants in mixed-use buildings around the region, most of those are 15 or less, so it still can accommodate a restaurant. So, uh, because you still end up with 13 to 14 feet inside, and so that's one of the issues is what the height should be. Here's just an illustration which is coming out blurry, sorry. Uh, this shows a 15-foot, if you can see that, sorry, 15-foot uh, height, and it's uh, a generous height even at 15. Um, that's a small building, but it's showing. And then um, the transparency. So um, your current code requires 50% of the facade to be transparent, meaning glazing, glaze, uh, glass doors, windows, seeing into the space. There was a town center zone requirement in the past that was 60% transparency, and then specified that that transparency be between 30 inches and eight feet from the sidewalk, which is a very good regulation that we're thinking maybe should be resuscitated but then this issue arises again of having the primary commercial corridor and the secondary corridor. So 60%, if we, keep that, uh, if we go back to 60% of the primary corridors, is remembering that 75% of that, of that building is in commercial or non-residential, that's a ratio that would yield about 45% transparency on the secondary corridors where 60% of the facade would be in non-residential. It's a lot of regulations kind of going quick, quick and fast there, but this is the last two bullets there if you uh, want to take a moment to, 
just reread them. Um, what we're thinking is that recognizing that secondary commercial corridors would have less width at 60%, but the transparency could be less at 45%, which is roughly the same percentage of the uh, commercial requirement or non-residential, I catch myself saying it. Now here's another idea that um, is new and may require some thought. So um, again, this has happened uh, in some other places that I've worked. Uh, on those secondary corridors, those side streets where it's still zoned commercial and the building might turn the corner or maybe it's a big site and there's a second building on the side street. Um, we've already said that that should be a lower amount of commercial or non-residential space, but that still doesn't mean it'll be occupied by a commercial or non-residential use right away. So we threw out this idea of potentially allowing live-work uh, uses, live-work live residential in those spaces. It's developed to the commercial standards, but allowing people to live and work. They have their little office in the front, maybe they make things, maybe they prepare your taxes, whatever. And maybe this would be for an initial transitional period, say five years, and staff could analyze that for five years, come back and, and tell you about that. So. Here's a definition, I don't have to read it out loud, but basically you can read that of what live work means. And then there's a, a little diagram here of somebody kind of living up in the mezzanine space, I mean sleeping up in the mezzanine space, having a little private space, and then having that public kind of commercial interaction in their front space, and then they've got their own space in the back again. So that would be an example of live work, and you see these all over um, Seattle and other cities right now. Now, uh, we did sort of a pros-cons uh, analysis here. I've already sort of stated the pro, that not every street is immediately conducive to commercial. A con is that um, you know, once, if we were to do it for an interim period, we're not going to kick people out. So if a street does start to become more commercially viable, then you have some spaces that may stay live-work. And some of the live-work is rather quiet. You may not see a lot of go, but that's just kind of an initial investment. Um, but live work units also help activate the street more than just during the typical eight to five hours because people are living there as well. So there's eyes on the street and there's coming and going in, in the evening as well. Um, and you know, there's the possibility of enforcement issues. Are people really working? Uh, and maybe that's an issue that could be devised. Um, but the other thing is that um, by allowing this uh, on these secondary streets, you're gonna get more buy-in from the development community it may help their financing if they can show to a bank that they don't have to immediately have tenants lined up for that space. A lot of developers will tell you, of mixed-use buildings that is, that oftentimes they just have to sort of float that ground floor space. They don't get bank financing unless they have tenants that are lined up, or if it's in a very hot commercial corridor. So this sort of helps them, if they're getting that initial financing, to say, well, I can, I can rent some of it to live work. Um, so that's the question. And uh, then the parking, as Andrew said, this is a perennial uh, subject of discussion. So um, currently the code requires one space for every 400 square feet of the uh, ground floor, non-residential or commercial. A typical mixed-use building, like we just heard about an example, for 3,000 to 4,000 square feet of space, uh, that would be eight to 10 spaces, that's the amount that we're talking about. Um, as you know, of course, providing parking, especially structured parking, which in most cases in this urbanizing environment, it's structured parking, is expensive. It's forty to $60,000 per space, so that's an expensive thing. Um, over time, and that's what we're all here, we're planning for the future, over time we may be over-parking, over-supplying the parking uh, with the current requirement. As areas transition fully into mixed-use walkable neighborhoods, 
um, there may be just too much parking. And of course, it could theoretically uh, increase the cost of the housing that you're providing. So um, factors to consider are that if more shared parking arrangements are made, are struck in, in the parking uh, resource of a building. So as people leave during the day, then those non-residential or commercial users on the first floor have some space available during the daytime because it's freer, as opposed to having them be locked up separate. Um, and of course, as the neighborhoods develop, like we said before, more, re more residents nearby are gonna have the opportunity to walk, cycle, or take short transit rides to different commercial uses. There's even on-street parking. And then, of course, some case, in some cases, developers know exactly what they want in that space. They're building it to have a restaurant, they're building it to have cafes, whatever, or an office. And so they'll put in parking if, they, if they're using their market um, savvy to know that they need to put some parking in. And here's just examples of, you know, this is just a, a textbook example of what shared parking means, but there you go. You've got the, the resource sharing between a daytime and an evening use, as opposed to having two fields and then they're separate, excuse me, they're um, vacant during different times. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to read this all out loud, but, but basically, you know, the pros are, like I said, it's costly to provide parking. It can help with the um, cost of housing. Um, we might overbuild the condition. Um, it might even induce parking. Uh, people will be encouraged to keep having cars, even in places that have good transit, because the parking is there. Um, and it's, self, it's somewhat self-selecting. If you go to an apartment building and you're touring it, and you have a car, and it's maybe an older car, and, they, and the, the rent's a little high, you're going, wow, $1,500 a month, $2,500, whatever was high these days. And, they, and then you say, does this come with parking? And they say, well, no, you have to pay for that. That would be 250 more. You might decide, you know what? I'm across the street from transit. That old car needs to get kicked to the curb. And that encourages the transition to a less car-dependent environment. Now, if it's a free parking space, you'll keep that clunker downstairs for the occasional use. It really does perpetuate itself. So um, let's see, cons, obviously, uh, if it's a tight area, um, people could complain that there's not enough parking. I think that's obvious. Um, and you never, you never heard that. In Edmonds, yeah, never, sure, never right? happened in Edmonds, that's for sure. And in some places, commingling the parking, like I mentioned earlier, where well, the people are leaving in the daytime but still drive away, so that therefore the commercial uses in the daytime can use some of that freed up parking. That does happen and it does work, but there's some places where the residents don't like that. They want their parking. They want a gate to come down, and they don't want anybody to come into that space. Uh, even if their car's not there. But it's all negotiable, anyway. Uh, so that's that issue. And then the height bonus. So um, again, the current code provides this eight foot bonus just off the um, uh, cuff for complying with the requirements. That's because in the existing requirements, not the interim, but the, the pilot, it required 18 feet. And the default, they thought, would be 10 feet. 10 feet would be, if we didn't have ground floor commercial, a first floor would be 10 feet. And so if we're requiring 18, we should give an eight foot height bonus because we just required eight more feet. Uh, well, again, if we're maybe going away from that 18 foot, then eight, eight foot bonus is probably no longer required. So if we lean towards another number, like a 15 foot floor, which we mentioned earlier, then perhaps it really should just be a five foot bonus. There is a minor mistake in your, in your staff report uh, where this line is stated uh, five feet versus eight, eight feet, and it says 15 versus 18. Sorry about that. That little one just kind of got in there. Now, for grocery store ready space, this is another issue that's come up in um, your past, in your record. So we've got the restaurant ready is already there, but what about grocery store ready? Well, grocery store pretty much is going to want a higher height, but they're very variable. 
you can't just say 18 and it will always be a grocery store. Some may want 20. I mean, it's variable. So I think that you could change your code to allow the height bonus to be based on a case-specific uh, analysis. When the developer comes in and says, I have a grocery store tenant, I'm putting in a 20-foot uh, floor, may I get 10 more feet instead of just five? And that can be something that the director can do through a, like administrative design review or whatever. Uh, the fitness center allowance that you heard earlier, um, I think just to cut to the chase, it's a difficult thing to do. We had difficulty with this in Seattle all those years ago when this happened. We had the same exact issue. If it's open to the public, then we'll call it commercial. Who's going to enforce that? It was never open to the public. And basically you had kind of a, you know, you could see people jumping up and down on machines, but it was basically a dead facade you couldn't interact with. And I, I think we recommend just getting rid of this allowance. Uh, so that's the end of our recommendations. Just to let you know, uh, public outreach and engagement is happening. We have a public survey right now that's open and you can all participate in, as well as anybody who's listening. <laughs> um, you can visit the city's website, um, engage.shorelinelaw.gov slash ground floor, and there's a survey there through uh, October 5th. And then there will be a developer stakeholder meeting in a couple weeks, I believe, on the 6th, I think, maybe, if we can do it. Um, so we want to transition to uh, some topics that are related but are for future discussion. And maybe take one step back when I say to give you why we think they're for future discussion and not right now. The council, as you know, approved um, Ordinance 968, which is the interim regulations, and they expire in December. So we're very laser focused right now on replacing those kind of tit for tat to get permanent regulations in place in all the places that that was amended in the interim ordinance. But it does raise some other issues, and we sort of, as a phase two, second wave, want to come to you with some of these other issues. So um, one of the first issues that people raise is, you know, we're seeing a lot like you just said from your smart, this morning's meeting. Um, a lot of multifamily developers are coming to Shoreline. It is a perfect location, not only, just not only because of the northward expansion of demand uh, from Seattle, but also, of course, the transit. So there will be a steady demand for multifamily development, and it's outcompeting the demand for just purely commercial development, that employment-generating development, office buildings, medical centers, that you need for those 10,000 jobs. That could result, if unbridled over the years, in an insufficient amount of land available for future commercial development. So more analysis is really necessary to consider uh, regulatory responses to this issue. And there may be some, but they're complicated, and. That will take some focused thought in the, in the near future. Um, there's some design standards that uh, Andrew and his staff have identified may be causing some uh, headache for some of the design teams of these new buildings um, related, for example, to the building modulation and the public place requirements that are required for the ground floor um, non-residential. So those are, again, tangential but related, and we think they, it makes sense to come back in phase two to talk about those. Um, and then a vacancy ordinance. Um, I don't know how many of you were part of that memo, but you and or predecessors of you all wrote a memo to council in which you stated that it might make some sense to consider a vacancy ordinance. Um, other cities have those. Uh, this would be re related to existing buildings and then new construction that has vacant space. We've begun to research um, what other jurisdictions do from simple registries to programmatic responses to vacant space. Again, it's a complex topic and we'd love to come back to you in a future phase uh, related to that. And then uh, people have raised the question of converting existing residential space, residential buildings in commercial zones to commercial. 
and um, that's a great uh, way to encourage small businesses, especially who wouldn't be able to afford building new construction. Um, generally, that's permissible in the commercial zones, but there are some barriers. Um, parking is one, for example. Right now in your code, it would say that, that when you move to the new use, the commercial use, likely the parking requirement is higher if it stays the same. And then where would that parking go if it's already built building that you know, only has so much parking around it? And then there are some building and fire code requirements. Now, there's not a lot of flexibility around that. Those are, But there is a chapter of the um, um, building code that's for existing buildings. And I just it's just important that the building official um, refer to that chapter when considering conversions and not the new construction chapter. So again, that would be something to bring back to you. And so next steps from now is basically to uh, uh, open up for discussion and questions and get any direction we can from you this evening so that we can come back uh, at the October 5th meeting. Here's a tentative schedule, um, which could have a first draft of code amendments on the focused set of items, not the other ones yet. And then you'll see how that would carry forward with another meeting um, and then a public hearing uh, here at the commission and then on the city council so that we can get these permanent regulations in place before the interim regulations expire in mid-December. And I think you can probably tell just from the narration that everything we've raised just at a staff level we sort of recommend be considered, but obviously they all have potential permutations and that's why we're here to discuss it and get your direction. Great, yeah, and I think with that we would love to hear the areas you'd like to dig in and comment on, ask, ask questions, we can flip back and forth through the presentation and go to different areas depending on your... Yeah, Thank I, you. I was just going to add too, there's um, under each topic with the flow of the staff report, there's a couple of discussion questions through each, so but I defer to however you want to mm -hmm. facilitate the discussion. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, you know, I, I was going to ask you the same thing. Uh, I was thinking that it might be easier to kind of keep us on topic and, and kind of be able to, you know, I think it would be more complete if we just go item by item, mm -hmm. um, like you have in the staff report, so that we can complete a full topic before moving on to the next. Yeah. Is everybody in agreement with that? Wonderful. Before we do that, though, does anybody have any, like, general questions or comments related? Yes. So. We're talking about this, I mean, ideally it's, it's part of a multifamily building, but are any of these regulations we're talking about, would they apply retroactively to non-residential uses in those zones in like a single story building? Or even a new, just solely non-residential building? Or is it only in the, within the confines of a multifamily, multi-purpose? This, this is an update to the multifamily section of the code, so it is generally speaking and that is actually something we didn't end up including in here but there was an early conversation about is there a different approach we want to take to specify this is what it needs to be in the zone regardless of what is being built um, and that's but that's not I think the direction that we're crafting this code draft code language it's if it's a multifamily development and it's in these zones then this is what applies I think maybe just one extra thing to, to, to remember is, as we said earlier, uh, um, there's been such demand and, in fact, manifestation of multifamily buildings in your commercial zones. And so 
as a partial response to that, you have required ground floor commercial, quote unquote, non-residential. So this is about those standards for how to get that ground floor commercial. Now, if, a, if someone wants to build an office building or a medical center or a commercial or a retail building, there's nothing to further regulate because they're doing it and that's what you want. This is a way to get commercial um, in a space that uh, otherwise if we didn't, it would just be purely residential. And then as far as existing buildings, um, I, I think it'd be, what is the word, it'd be non-compliant or sort of grandfathered in is how people talk about it. But um, so it, yeah, we're not gonna go policing the existing buildings and put them out, of, put them out on the street. Anybody else? Okay. Well, we have our discussion items in front of us. We're gonna we have a good warm up here. Commercial versus non-residential. Does anybody have any comments on that? Is anybody opposed to changing it to non-residential? Uh, Commissioner Galuska. Um, I'm definitely open to broadening that um, from beyond retail, but I mean I would want to be careful about certain non-residential uses storage, uh, things like that. Even offices, I would be a little leery on in some neighborhoods because a ground floor office doesn't necessarily add much um, activity. Um, downtown Everett has, they've allowed some of the existing commercial to convert to office and I don't think you get much out of it. Now that may be appropriate a few blocks off of a, a, you know, a main commercial drive, but um, I, would, I would probably be careful of that in some of too broad a use of that because I, I think in the you know the real city centers that isn't going to have much activity. Yes, Commissioner Mosher. I mean, I agree. I think that the non-residential is a good change just because it does broaden it. I, I would differ just because I work with a bunch of developers like down in Roosevelt, and the problem they've been having is you can only have so many bubble tea places, <laughs> and so and part of that is the way Seattle's non or ground level uses described is it's described in a similar way with the 15 but it's kind of predicated on the idea of an old like shotgun style and not the kind of long and skinny that we're getting but it limits the amount of uses you can put in it like it excludes all professional services which is limiting you, you're stuck with only retail that there's only a finite amount of um, we've come up with ways around it that I'm sure other people will come up with too but so I'd be wary of to the getting developers on board like Limiting that might make it harder to. Uh, Commissioner Callahan. So is this um, change sort of um, you're seeing this elsewhere too that people are changing commercial to uh, non-residential to broaden? Yes, I don't have the examples for you, but yes, that's true. One of the issues to remember, and you know. Um, in a city that has, say, a historic traditional downtown with a strong retail presence, um, you might have a separate zone for that. And maybe in the future, in the town center zone, you might tweak that further. But for example, if somebody came in today and wanted to build an office building, nothing to do with multifamily, they're just building an office building in one of your commercial zones, you'd have an office building on that street. And it may or may not be super lively to the passerby, but it would be commercial. It would be an employment center. It would be a place to get your services and good, you know, or, uh, not goods, but services and, and uh, activities done. So this is just recognizing that uh, absent the specific issue of, of how 
active and exciting that use is, because we haven't gotten to that level, it is commercial, and that's the primary issue, is not to lose land to commercial uses. Because if you live in an urban village type environment, you may need your taxes prepared, or you may need to go talk to a small designer about uh, your uh, addition or something, and that's just a little office. And those are part of the mix. It's not always just purely retail. So um, that's why we thought the, the broader, and now if there are uses that that zone doesn't allow, it certainly wouldn't be allowed in this. So like a mini warehouse, I don't know if that's allowed or not. And all, and maybe, like an NB, for example, I don't know. It seems like it probably wouldn't be, but I don't know for a fact. So if there's a zone that something's not allowed in a standalone building, it wouldn't be allowed in the commercials, the ground floor commercial space. Yeah, I think the way the current regulations are structured, it basically ties back to the underlying zoning. And then, as I noted, I think on one of the early slides, there are some specific uses called out. So mm -hmm. like the, the pawn shop and kind of the usual culprits that you don't necessarily want to attract a lot of to your city or to you know, like your prime commercial corridors. Anybody else have any comments on this? I think it's great to, um, I think commercial is too restrictive and I think non-residential is a good kind of catch-all. And I, I think that if it does attract um, small business, you know, like a lawyer or um, a design professional or something, that those people might, they would, they would probably um, frequent the commercial that is around. I mean, while they're there during the day, they may go out and get a bubble tea or <laughs> whatever the case may be. So um, I think it would be a great change. Yeah. I have a question. About two years ago, we visited a little business that couldn't start up just down by 20th Avenue Northwest and Richmond Beachway, just as you go towards the saltwater path. How would this change in regulation help that business to, to start? It wouldn't. Uh, so to the earlier point, the, this, these provisions would apply to multifamily development in, in the subset of zones that are identified. And so this would mandate the ground floor of those multifamily developments be providing a commercial or non-residential space as a means to activate you know, that ground level area. Um, there were provisions, however, adopted, I forget when exactly, but uh, the, the commercial adaptive reuse code amendments, I think last year, that um, you know that was a, a case study and a perfect example as to why we took those amendments forward. Um, I don't know the latest on that space, but I think there's been a, some stuff in the works in terms of having, because of the action of the commission and the council, more flexibility on the regulations to reuse the space, uh, more flexibility on things like landscaping, parking, and all that stuff that when you're trying to move into an existing space like that, you can't just bring everything up to code magically. Yeah. Thank you. Commissioner Brinson. I think what I'm hearing is that you're trying to constrain, not constrain, restrain our brains into sort of only the first floor of residential multifamily buildings, right? Like that is what we are talking about. 
Okay. Yes. I'm just trying to keep my own brain <laughs> in that box. Got it. Any other discussion on this? Wonderful. See, good warm up. Uh, next, we have the primary and secondary commercial corridors. This one, uh, who's going to start this off? And if you need me to summarize that again, let yeah. Yes, Commissioner. Do we have a, if we, as we think about sort of the future land use map and the 10,000 jobs and all of that, do we have a sense? of how that math interacts with the amount of ground floor retail, or sorry, commercial math. Like that, that's what I'm puzzling through as we're thinking about sort of how often and where is a bit of an abstract demand analysis. Do we have a sense of those, how those things work together as we're? We could probably do some rough estimates. Um, and I'd be looking somewhat to Patrick in terms of just like high level numbers if we were to estimate, you know, a certain percentage of development and ground floor space allocated and then convert that space to, you know, jobs. Um, but we are, and, and Patrick alluded to this just on the, you know, the topics that are beyond the scope of this discussion. Um, we're in the early stages of doing our analysis around the jobs capacity for the 2024 comp plan update and to see truly where we're at. And through that discussion and you know, the results of the analysis and through the comp plan discussion, we may be looking at options to where do we go back to basics in some of these commercial zones and prohibit residential development. Like it might come down to that as looking at an option to retain more land area for jobs in order to meet the jobs target. So you're, that's a really good question. I don't have a solid answer, but we can see what we can pull together for purposes of this discussion. But I think the jobs discussion and the overarching commercial land use zoning for the city is definitely going to be coming back to you all for the comp plan update. Yeah, I just, I, it's hard to visualize when you're thinking about sort of, I mean, this, this discussion item is restricting the amount that's available. And so without having a sense of whether or not, I mean, I think in retrospect, we often see in our neighbors to the south that there is too much, but sort of how do you think about that in advance is a little bit tough. Um, One of the things that we introduced in the related uh, discussion item, which is about the live work, because it's really related to the secondary mm -hmm. concept, secondary corridor concept, is uh, it being kind of an interim regulation. I think, I don't think there should be any fear about doing something that you are going to look at in five years, because I think, as uh, Nate said, there's just great interest in doing multifamily. I mean, if you could open the floodgates, it would just be all multifamily buildings. Your entire city would be multifamily buildings. And so I think that we want to recognize that um, there should be com a commercial or non-residential uses in the ground floors, but some of those less commercial streets, maybe not even at all commercial right now, would be hard to either finance that ground floor or fill it. And right. so maybe a lesser standard makes sense. There's a continuum there too. I mean, you might say, well, the live work sounds nice. Uh, maybe we should do that and not have it be a lesser amount. Maybe it's just, it's the same amount, but you can use the work. Or maybe it is a lesser amount, and you can use part of it in the worker. I mean, there's it's kind of a, a continuum of factors that you could do any way you want. Um, but 
for this little subset of, of issues, I think you should just view it as an interim thing that you're going to look at after you have half a dozen projects under your belt over the next, you know, few small number of years and see how it looks. And then it'd be great to see that all of the new buildings come in. I'm saying this is should see that none of the new buildings coming in have are vacant and the ground floors are all occupied with something. That would be wonderful. And maybe you push a little harder after five years and you get a little more out of the, out of the developers. Uh, would you like for Patrick to go over this uh, next topic here, refresh us, or are you ready to dive in? Okay. I mean, I think it, in general, I, I think it would make sense for the primary. I'm, I'm channeling a couple of our current commercial centers. Like, if you think down the four corners, like, a lot of the primary streets are already occupied by large commercial developments like grocery stores that aren't necessarily going to go anywhere because it's hard to do them. So I'm, I'm hesitant to limit some of those side streets, even over like Ridgecrest and North City, just because it's going to limit the potential of what they can build there without something else going away first. And kind of, so, no. so to, to I, I want to make sure it's uh, clear what we we're introducing here. Um, the notion is, again, the existing regulation is that 75% of the ground floor should be in commercial or non-residential. The notion we're introducing is that maybe a smaller percentage, just somewhat smaller, we introduce 60, it could be some other number, just slightly smaller, be on the side street where it's not necessarily a commercial street yet. It may be in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but maybe it isn't there yet to avoid vacancies and just to help with development. That's the issue, so it's certainly not that we wouldn't require any commercial on those side streets. It's just a, some lower amount. And we just threw out 60 because it seemed to make sense, but you might have another number in mind if you are interested in the idea at all anyway. Yeah, I think it, it makes it sense to me. I, I'm telling Commissioner Brinson is just not knowing like how much we truly need first place what we have already and like what we assume would go away. Don't want to end up not enough either. Go ahead. I, I mean, I think some flexibility seems like a good thing. Um, you've mentioned that you're going to have a stakeholder meeting. Is this something that you're going to ask specifically about? Like, is 60% still attractive to you? Um, is that what you're going to be asking? Well, yeah. The, the okay. whole, yeah, kind of whatever we kind of come out of this <laughs> with, right, is going to go, Sorry, yeah, whatever we sort of come out of this process, the direction we get from you and what, what kind of continues to live on is yeah, will be things that we bring to that group for their response and reaction. And I got an email from one of the folks we asked to comment on some of the stuff last go around, and he said, isn't that what we just talked about? And they just ignored everything we said? So <laughs> don't worry, we won't just do whatever they tell us to do either. I think one of the things to remember is that unless a developer has uh, those commercial tenants in mind and wants to do that. Most developers are multifamily developers and they're begrudgingly providing you with the commercial space. Yeah, I don't mean you, I mean basically all cities nowadays. Um, and they may or may not even get financing for it, but they recognize that it's, you know, most cities require that. So if you say they could do less, <laughs> they're probably going to be happy about that and want to do less. But it may make sense to do less on certain streets. What Seattle did, um, I was on the design, after working for Seattle for 17 years, then I was on the design review board for five or six years. And so many more projects came along. And 
we couldn't do anything about it. It was like, well, sorry. And they would stand there and say, we're never going to get a tenant on this side street or whatever street it was. So then Seattle finally changed it to allow the live work. They still didn't get rid of the requirement, but they allowed live work. I guess, since you mentioned live work, I think uh, having lived in one of those in Ballard, I can tell you the one challenge with them is that it sounds like an interim thing, but a lot of big landlords will put a prohibition in your lease from using the live work as a commercial. Like when I had one, it said I could only use it as residence. Oh, wow. So, I mean, yeah. whether the city code allowed it or not, it was, you know, line item in there. So it's a good idea, I think, to some of the points of, like, accountants and small things. Like, if you think of Western, along Seattle, there's all those great condos that have those. They're always kind of active, but to make sure that you're able to use them as a business. Commissioner Lynn. Yeah, I just want to uh, add in another layer that if we already have a overbuilt of uh, all residential in certain areas, um, is this uh, primary and secondary rules or, or regulation still apply to those areas? Like say if we already know that the area is uh, uh, already overbuilt, can, how do we make it more flexible to uh, like apply the higher percentage uh, rate for that area too. I, I, it, I, a, I, I don't know. I have a thought, but I'm not sure it's the answer. <laughs> My thought is um, it's a little bit as uh, going back to what I said about applying maybe these regulations on an interim basis and saying, you know, this is these issues about uh, primary and secondary, live work, different standards for the amount of commercial are about the transition that your city's in from what it's like right now to what it may be a very urbanized place, certainly a generation from now, but even in 10 years. So what we're talking about are regulations that are gonna smooth, it, smooth that transition. And so it's perfectly fine to say, okay, we're gonna do this something, whatever, <laughs> whatever you decide, you know, whatever combination makes sense, do something and we're going to task ourselves with looking at this in five years or whatever, or after, or, or maybe it's not five years, after so many buildings are built or whatever, maybe it's based on a number of buildings, but whatever, and then look at it and then right size it again, because there's no way to know how fast development will happen. Right now we think we know, but then of course that could change with the economy. Uh, there's no way to know the nature of the tenants that will come in those ground floor spaces. And so I think we're focusing on transition right now. Your city is in a very, very pivotal point of transition, um, and you're providing transitional regulations in a sense. Anybody else? Vice Chair Ramachandran. I, I get what they're saying and I'm in support of it because it really gives us a chance to look at the city. It's, it's almost like a leap of faith. That's the biggest problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, it really gives us a chance to um, see the city in a different form by providing opportunities and removing barriers that prevent us from development. Uh, and, and that's why I'm thinking that the 60 maybe is a, a, a good place to start. And uh, if there's change to be made down the line like you guys are suggesting, like uh, the three of you are suggesting, uh, then maybe record it that way. 
as a place to come back and revisit once we have seen examples and understood maybe some of the undesired or unintended consequences of this decision. Commissioner Galuska. Uh, I definitely support having the kind of a primary with, and then something a little uh, less intensive coming off of that. Uh, my quibble would be I, I don't love basing that on principal and minor arterials. Um, that's, I, our transportation map is kind of based really on the past and automotive patterns. I think for these new neighborhoods, we should be looking more like at a walk shed for maybe a central area. I mean, the train station's an easy one where you could, you could do a walk shed from the train station, but in other neighborhoods, you know, maybe we could identify the core of the neighborhood and, and, and base it on you know, quarter mile walk shed or something from the, from whatever that center point is. And we, I remember we had kind of a discussion about that, I think, when we looked at North City where we said, mm -hmm. I mean, we're just drawing lines on a map, but it was kind of like, yeah, right about there seems right rather than having a technical description. Commissioner Brinson. I agree, because I'm thinking about sort of, you know, a, like it makes super sense on a main commercial street to have it required. It also makes sense on those corners, right? On the sort of, on, on those blocks. So I'm not, I can't picture principal versus minor, minor arterials based on sort of what we've been talking about, but I think I appreciate Commissioner Galuska's point of it being distance from that main commercial piece, especially as we're thinking we are putting a lot of residents into all of these buildings. So what commercial can be supported is gonna be very different, even over the course of five years, um, as we build those residents into the city. So I think that thinking about it a little bit more on a distance perspective might be helpful, if that's manageable from a staff perspective. Andrew. We, yeah, what I'm, I'm picturing, we could potentially bring back um, maybe some visuals, some maps, and maybe do a, like drilling into some of these key areas um, and, you know, highlighting where the regulation would apply and then you can look at a little more finer detail than just the citywide map and drill into you know, what the surrounding area is looking like. Um, we've got, we have our um, interactive uh, property viewer map we could pull up now if anyone wanted to do like a deeper dive into any specific area just as it relates to street type but like what I'm describing would be sort of another layer of analysis that we could potentially bring back when this is implemented when you're actually drawing the maps are you do we have the flexibility to just draw it on the map or does it have to be sort of associated with some other underlying regulatory framework yeah, I think you could, if you wanted to take the approach where you're drawing it on the map, almost like an overlay area, similar to what is done in Ridgecrest and North City, that would be one option to look at as well. Okay. That seems to line up with a lot of things we've been talking about recently. Yes. I feel like a theme is <laughs> showing up. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're doing with cottage houses, too. When we did the, the density bonus, the, when you, you kind of did the clouds, outside of the transit stops that generated that. So it's, again, the consistency of how we're looking at it. Yeah. Anybody and, else? And so just so I can clarify, that's your the interest that I think we're hearing is kind of identifying 
just really identifying those locations of this is primary and this is secondary and or just maybe you can identify primary and everything else is secondary but that's the conversation you guys would like to have and look at maps and have you identify them yes I was probably obvious never mind <laughs> I guess you know for the sake of advancing and getting some direction you know off the top of your heads what what would be kind of the key commercial nodes or corridors that we would want to be focusing the higher requirement versus the secondary requirement I mean are there any right off the right off bat that we kind of know that we would want to focus attention on <laughs> I know I mean <laughs> I mean the ones that Jeff asked me is, is rare occurrence when we use that side of the highway first like I think if you look at any of the intersections in North City from mm -hmm. kind of like where the Safeway is up to the top end like and if you go a quarter at least a quarter mile from each of those intersections that seems like a good place to start if you thought of most of those business districts mm -hmm. get a picture of the other one. I, can't I know I can't <laughs> too much on the spot but I think that works if you go down to the four corners as well there's eighth and that kind of one and then you go down to 15th and 20th like I think those are kind of separate and really those are the Five corners, like track of the hills. So, Pat. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I also didn't have my microphone on. Um, we're looking here at the intersection of sort of Eighth and Richmond Beach, right? And the, that's where the QFC and all that stuff is. It, under the principle, under the schema that you all presented, would eighth be a minor and Richmond Beach would be a major? Is that sort of what you all were thinking? Yes. I'm seeing nods. Yes, yes. And, the, and that's where I think, you know, if you sort of start at the intersection and you go back a block or two, I think that's what we're getting at, is thinking about it more in terms of how the streets relate to a main center and out, as opposed to Oh, because you're on a side street, even though I can walk to you from the light rail or I can walk to you from that QFC, you wouldn't have to have the same kind of retail. Just in, in my, I agree that we don't know what's coming. I also think that we can't unbuild things we build and we know the development is coming in the next five years. It's already here. So I think that's the other sort of piece that I think about. So what I'm hearing is that like part of 8th uh, is uh, it is sort of feeling more primary to folks here, and but not all of 8th, right? Um, so I think that's interesting for us. One way to do something like that, because otherwise it's a pretty intricate mapping exercise for the whole city, but one way would be perhaps to have a just a citywide standard that it doesn't become secondary until you know 300 feet or whatever from a primary corridor mm -hmm. allowing for the fact that it's a transition you know and then again there's no science I didn't just made up that number it could be 250 you'd look at property dimensions just standard property dimensions along the main property uh, the main primary corridors to see what sort of when 
that property ends, and maybe it's 250, maybe it's you know whatever, but it could be something like that. Otherwise, it's a detailed mapping exercise, that, which is possible as well, but it would take a little more time. Yes, Commissioner Kelly. I actually really like that idea because I think that would solve some of the concerns about that, but not turn this into a detailed mapping exercise. Um, because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think if there are just some um, standards around the how far out from the primary, then that that does it. I agree. Definitely agree. And I don't, I personally, I don't, 60% sounds good because I don't know any better. Um, I mean, the math, I like the math, it, you know, I like, I like math, so that's fun for me, but um, I definitely think it needs to be less than, than the primary, and 60 is, I think, a great place to start for sure. The reason we, um, well, I'll just say I, and not the royal we in this case, but the reason I floated 60, and it could be any other number, is um, if it's 50 or less, then you end up with just half of the ground floor being the other use and the other half fully residential or parking or whatever. And so having that little extra bit more than 50 means that both sides of the ground floor, assuming there's a door in the middle, there's not always a door in the middle, but if that were the case, has a little bit of other activities as well. So it's just a little north of 50 makes some sense. Yeah. From a design perspective, really more than anything. Yeah. That makes sense. Anybody else on this topic? Do you have some direction from us? Do you have, do you have questions of us? No, no I, I think it's okay. clear, yeah. Okay, great. I think we, I think we already basically kind of discussed, oh, yeah. Yeah. kind of we wrapped several issues into yes. this discussion. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so, and then the depth of space issue, it's a simpler one, this, this conversation will be easier. It's just a little bit more flexibility on the absolute minimum depth. Um, there's nothing scientific about 15, it's just, um, I did hear that, um, and Andrew can um, confirm this through your administrative design review, you can allow departures from these standards, but, um, it is a whole other process just to get five feet, and it, you know. So, this is just recognizing that it still would be an average of thirty feet. So you're not going to have less space. It just means that maybe somewhere it could be less deep in order for some other place, and and then a, a, another area would be deeper. Just there's design issues that pop up. It's amazing how many times you'll find the core of the building ends up being bigger because of some new requirement on space for garbage and space for electric and space for whatever and then they don't have enough room in one area by the elevator core or something so right. it's a way to get around it yeah 15 makes sense to me I, I'm very good with 15 anybody have comments on that or against it <laughs> okay good height <laughs> I think the 15 foot makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, yeah, I think for like, if we look at some of the buildings, like I think the challenge with the one up the street is that it's probably nine feet at, at this, at the geo there. And it works if you have like a single story building, but the challenge with those, because I have tenants that keep not renting spaces like that is because they're toilet pipes above you. Like you don't, you constantly feel uncomfortable 
helpful. And it's by having them that extra couple of feet away. This is not at all any of the other practicalities of ductwork or anything like that. A lot of people are really turned off by the lower ones too. So it's also a good height. <laughs> I completely defer to Commissioner Mosher on this one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Higher is always better. I did include in your, I'm sorry for jumping. I did include in your attachments a list of some other cities' guidelines on this issue. And 15 seems to be what's becoming the more standard requirement. I don't think Seattle's there yet. I think it's 13 still. It's been that since 86 or something. but but uh, most of the new buildings are actually going higher than the minimum. Uh, not 18 usually, but, <laughs> but 15 is, is common. I mean, I think the only reason 18 would be interesting is if you thought of turning the corner and those like live work ones being more like townhomes, like mm -hmm. 15 feet, you get really squished in there to get two floors that are habitable, but I think that's a developer decision at some point. Yeah. Because even at, we're kind of pushing up against some construction type And the 15, the, 15 uh, the height stuff is um, floor to ceiling or floor to floor? We're proposing floor to floor. Floor to floor. Okay, good. Yes. Yeah. That's an easier thing for people to understand. Yes. And also ceiling heights vary, so it's just easier to round up to 15, and then it's a one-foot ceiling assembly, two-foot ceiling assembly. It's still enough space, 13 to 14 feet. Anybody else? Thank you. This is, relates again to that issue that you, we were talking, but it's if you go with a uh, lower percentage on whatever becomes the secondary corridors, <laughs> um, then the transparency should also be less because the transparency is a percentage of 75. And so this is kind of just giving a percentage that's about the same out of. And do we want to go, we want to go both higher and lower, right? We want to go from 50% up to 60 for primary. Oh, right, right. right. And then, right, right. and then, so we want, do we want to adjust it in both directions depending on? Was that clear? Yes, yes. And. <laughs> It's currently 50%. Yeah. I, and we, which and is a little low. Yeah, we've yeah. seen 60 in and other. you had it already in a zone. And you previously had it in the TC zone as 60. Yes. Which seems pretty good, frankly. Plus that specificity of the 30 inches to 8 feet, that's really important. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen, you don't have as many steep slopes and things as Seattle and other cities where you end up with transparency that's. 15 feet in the air and where you're walking there's none and that still met the requirement it's got to be sometimes you have to step that if you have a slope so when we question when it, when that space is non-residential like we are defining it and say I want to have in a dentistry and the dentistry is facing the non-primary street how would that transparency look like? Because I would really not want people walking by looking into my teeth. Yes. So that's a really good question. Um, and this, your question actually touches upon something that's been raised a couple times in staff discussions, and I'm, 
and I'm surprised that it took so long to come out now, and that is we're not talking about specific uses. You have to remember the building may be there 75 years, and there will be a lifetime of uses in these spaces. So when we say transparency, we mean that it's built with, with the transparent storefront system. Now, whether a particular user for one year, five years, 10 years has the blinds pulled because they're drilling somebody's teeth, that's a level of enforcement I don't think we're gonna get to, nor probably want to. But then when that changes to a, book a bookstore or a coffee shop or whatever, 20 years from now, I mean, you remember, these buildings will be here for a long time. So we're just trying to make sure that the space is there to accommodate the full range of uses. But we recognize that it may not truly be transparent in any one point in time because they may have the blinds pulled. And even a retail shop can have a, stream, a, a sun guard pulled down if it's facing you know, south or west. So it isn't, maybe transparency sounds like a little bit of a, a, a bait and switch, but, but what we mean is it's a storefront system of transparent glazing. How they use that over time, we're not gonna be able to enforce. I don't think you don't want me to say that you're going to enforce that. I hope, right? <laughs> I think sixty percent is. I think I think it needs to be up to sixty percent. So, do we, through our administrative design review, do we have? Can we? Is that the opportunity for a deviance? I'm thinking, of the thirty to eighty is great, but if you're thinking of something with a restaurant, like a lot of them have, like nano walls now that open, which would go to the ground. And so you wouldn't want them to have to take that extra, it's an energy code hit too. Like would, would we be willing to like take a little bit of it here and put it down here? Can we do that? Or do, do we have to build some flexibility like that in? Yeah, so again, we could craft this as, in a way that you could go through the administrative design review process and get okay. the departure. Yep. It also sounds like what you're, you're, the scenario you're describing would actually provide more it would provide more, but I think the, it's more, but it might have to come out of somewhere else, like oh. the unit where you would want oh, oh. glazing to be, just because you have those maximums that you can work within. Right. Anybody else? Generally in agreement with this? Staff's recommendation? <laughs> Great. Live work, residential. Who wants to start? <laughs> Commissioner Brinson. I think this makes sense to me as a transitional piece, right? I mean, I think th this kind of flexibility allows for the unknown. And, you know, I appreciate that Seattle put it in way after the fact. Um, I was a little bit confused by your comment that you're fitting in a live work two story unit within that first 15 feet. Is that how it works? <laughs> I just know. I just need not, to. Oh, I mean, there's a lot of permutations of it. There's some where it's, it's frankly, I'm trying to think one way. I can't picture one here. Where it looks, if you look into it, it looks like an apartment. Okay. It's on the ground floor. It's just a ground and floor. And technically, unit. it's live work because, like, there's a bedroom that's tucked behind, but, like, your kitchen. Okay. It's like a kid. I had one that was a kitchen and an island. It looked, if you walked in, it just looked like an apartment with 18 20. But I there's other, there's other ones That's where it's, it's more stacked. Like um, there's a couple on 60, on Roosevelt and like University. There's a bunch of them that are meant as like live works, but they're built where it's like, it's a retail space and a little thing. And then it's an apartment like truly above it okay. that has its own entrance, which those are a little more successful because they're truly separate. Uh, this actually, um, I just had a thought that maybe I'll, 
take the liberty to throw out there. Uh, just a little bit extra thing for us to do, but um, there was a kind of working definition in the presentation of what live work means, and it basically means there's at least one dedicated space to the work, <laughs> the whatever that might be, um, which can then come in any version. It could be a mezzanine or a loft. It could be just a deeper space that has the private living space behind it. I mean, whatever the developer wants to do, but that at the storefront, there is a dedicated space that, and what that raises is maybe we need to propose a definition to add to the code of live work, which we kind of threw out an operational one in the presentation, but we could probably um, do a definition that, that states that, that live work, um, you know, there has to be, that the thing is that that would be at the building permit level, like when they're getting their occupants, their tenant improvement permit to become a residential unit. But then when the building permit comes in, the building plans examiner, or maybe the zoning plans examiner, whatever, would have to look and say, oh yeah, there's the space, it's 10 by 10 or whatever, and it's not a kitchen, and it's not a bedroom, and it's not a, it's just, and it's right there at the storefront, and that's basically all they have to do. So that it couldn't be the scenario where you walk in the door and it's the kitchen, because that isn't, you know, will it work? Unless it's a cooking demonstration <laughs> <Yeah>. office, <laughs> which we had one in Edmonds, that's why I said that. I think the other challenge with them is just they're probably locked in is that use if you're thinking of like a type five, like a wood building, like it's not easy to like take over the adjoining one. Like you're, you have some real limits to that. You can kind of see that up and down, like 15th and Ballard. There's a bunch of them that are always going to be like a, a 15 foot wide space. Like it's hard to right. become something different. Right. And I would also say just from talking to developers that um, even if, you know, because the way we have it now in most of these places, there is the 12 foot height um, or before the interim regs where, you know, it was supposed to be built to commercial standards so that it could be converted to commercial on some future date. And so um, I was very early in my role five years ago when I was just a baby and I was very <laughs> naive and I brought them coffee shops and things like that. And they're like, you know, because they hadn't even finished building the building yet, but they purchased the materials that they're going to put in and it's countertops and toilets and sinks and light fixtures. And they're not just going to pull that all out and throw it in the, take it to the dump. They, you know, somebody, some future owner may do that, but it's just like in your own home, when it's time to replace that sink, you get to pick out whatever sink you want, and maybe then you do an upgrade. But most homeowners, I think, generally speaking, don't do the upgrades just because they want to. They kind of need to arrive at that end of life date. And so just to kind of to your point that um, in addition to maybe the challenge of relocating a, this wall or moving things around, it's also those fixtures that they just spent all that money on need to age, amortize. One, of the, one way of thinking about it is when you think of um, older cities that have a crop of older buildings, you know, uh, older homes, craftsman homes, 100-year-old homes, whatever, that are right in the kind of edge of the heart of the town. I mean, you can think of Edmonds this way, you can think of Snohomish, there's a lot of towns that will have the main street and then there's homes in the next street. And you now, now we're talking about 100 years, but you go and most of those aren't homes anymore. They're the law office and the beauty parlor and the flower shop and the whatever that they've converted. So as market demand for commercial increases, then maybe the space won't grow much, but it becomes a great space for small businesses to open. Um, and, and hopefully they've been a small business all along, because that's the point, but, but even more so be a business with employees and all, but in a small space. So it's, it's about um, still providing the space that meets commercial standards, but allowing for a transition in those less commercial secondary quarters that we will define in that upcoming uh, exercise.
I guess presumably they would follow the same requirements as the depth we were just talking about, though. Because that's the other thing I've noticed, is some of them just end up being a little bit small and not. That's why they become more of an apartment than I think. Yeah, yes. I think that's what we're hearing is that now live work as a use, there's a definition that gets added, and and maybe that's limited to the secondary corridors. Yes, that's what the proposal is. Then on the list, uh, but yeah, the dimensional requirements stay the same. Um, mm -hmm. I think, right? Yeah. I have a question, and I'm maybe just not quite understanding, or I'm very naive. Is that if we're talking mixed use, um, and we're talking about ground floor commercial, that's below a big old apartment or multi-family, you know, multi-family, um, how did, can't the person that works there just rent an apartment in the building and not have to have a specific space? I mean, it, I don't quite understand how that works. Well, it's a different living arrangement. So, um, and I visited these two, you, you say, Commissioner, that you've been, that you lived in one or you visited one, and I've visited them as well. So it's a different arrangement where the person is paying um, their total rent, not for two places, so that they, they don't have to have a separate business place that they're paying rent for, but they can just have one place that has the dedicated working space, and then they can live behind it or above it, depending on the configuration. So they're basically getting the benefit of one rental payment for both living and working, and it's in one unit as opposed to living upstairs, but then also renting something downstairs. Now, people may do that as well as they grow or as their business grows and they want to take over the whole space because they can then hire an employee and start putting desks in or whatever. But at least in an interim, you know, beginning period, uh, people, especially if it's a, just a sole operation, you know, a person who prepares taxes, a person who does your accounts, a person who does wills or, uh, you know, retirement counseling or... Uh, acupuncture studio or I mean there's so many one-person things that just they don't have the money and the overhead in their business to have two rental payments the other way to look at it too is our zoning right now um, if you it's like if you're working from home basically but our zoning right now correct me if I'm wrong Andrew, uh, is that that's like a business it's a home occupation and it actually limits like if you're having clients visit you or having like the number of deliveries you can get a day so it lets you have a commercial presence and still live there in a more legal yeah. Kind of I, I mean, I've seen them. It makes sense, but uh, I'm—I don't know. I, I'm just thinking that there there must come a point when, after a certain amount of units, you know, when you have a, a building with a hundred units, um, and then you still have a live workspace in the commercial area, that to me doesn't make sense. In a smaller smaller configuration, maybe. I don't know, I just, I, I can't picture it and I just don't, I, I can't see that, you know, if you have this huge apartment complex with the ground floor commercial and then you allow that one person to have then that live work space, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me when you have so many apartments. Just a, a it's good. Just saying that that's one thing I haven't understood yet. Chair, I think it, it it's actually a combination, right? It's like, and I think that's, I'm struggling with this too after I've said this. It's really ground floor residential is what it is at that point. Right. I mean, because there's not, 
it is a specific physical layout that allows certain things like clients and deliveries, et cetera. But I could just as easy live there and sit at my desk and work from home all day. Like no one's, Andrew's not gonna show up at my door. Um, it'd be great, you could bring me coffee, it'd be awesome. Um, but, and so that's, that's the pieces. I mean, I think I see your point of this would allow for, I think this meets a little bit in the middle of my issue around building today for what we need tomorrow. This allows you to build today, build these spaces, and at some point, not in five years, but at, at some point when there's a turnover, there's an end of useful life, et cetera, there is a new envisioning of those ground floors. I think in that way, we have to be a little bit careful because these are residential units which are desirable by developers to be built. And so it's very likely that that's all we get. Is my, it would be also my concern in that space of not getting true commercial and only getting these sort of someday eventually maybe they turn into commercial if every star has aligned. Patrick, remind me, I thought, didn't Seattle limit the number you could have in any one building? Because it could have been like at some point in history. Point. Well, the current regulations, I think, are that these secondary streets, these side streets or whatever, it can be lit work. Okay. I do have another idea that I can float, if that's okay. My other idea is that we're already talking about potentially having a lower percentage by 15 percentage points of the ground floor residential on whatever we designate as the secondary streets. Um, maybe instead of allowing, again, this is only supposed to be transitional for, say, five years or so, but maybe instead of allowing all of that to be potentially live work, maybe we say half of it could be live work, and the other half has to be truly commercial. Mm -hmm. So we're sort of, it's, the notion of it is to help the developments happen because they don't get financing for this space if it's not on a truly commercial street that they have to sort of throw that away. Um, and, um, and recognizing that live work does in fact work <laughs> when it's truly live work space, it does not, you know, um, and it will eventually transition, but maybe it's not all, maybe it's half or some other number. We could come back with, with kind of a pick list on that on that issue if you if you want to consider allowing some but not the whole amount on that ground floor. I think I just realized that I misunderstood the five years piece. You're talking about only allowing it in new developments for five years, not only allowing it in in buildings that are built for their first five years. Only allow after only five allow years of having these regulations in place, the live work allowance, if it is deemed by the city, would go away, and we would have commercial in any new building after that point. That's the concept today. Tonight. That's your concept. Okay. And you, you might craft that in a different way. You might say after so many buildings have been built, maybe okay. five years, you suddenly have the biggest boom in your city's history and you want it in three years. But you could do it that way. You could do five years. You could do whatever you want. This was The, the notion was to try to do something transitional. Okay, I was misunderstood. I was thinking about it from the sort of first five years of the building's life, and then they were required to change. So thank you. I have been. Thank but you. We could also correct the same thing. Maybe <laughs> come back with a pick list on this one, where you say, "Live work, yes or no?" As a concept, if so, all the ground floor and secondary, half the ground floor, two thirds. One third. I mean, we could just sort of set up a pick list on that and have the code language, you know, in in waiting for that. So. So you don't have to decide that right now, maybe. Is that, does that work for us? Can we do that? Mm -hmm. I'm okay with transitional. Thanks. 
fun begins. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 Parking. Who would like to begin? I am so excited that you wrote down no parking. I, I, I'm for it. I'm part of my reason of asking the question, though, originally about the existing buildings. Is like I think if you start doing a new building with commercial, like that makes it kind of unfair to the existing commercial buildings. But that's neither here nor there. I, I think it's good because especially as you think of like some of these side streets. I'm thinking of I think it's Linden right over there. Like it helps like start to break down our kind of semi-rural right-of-way usage by people where we have signs that say no parking on the street like it really encourages street parking and us actually using the right-of-way that we have so I think I think it's good it also just makes it cheaper and it is a different way of working I mean I think Julius Julius and I probably walked the most out of all of us but I walked to do most of errands so I think it's kind of nice to have that encourage that opportunity to have walkable things Commissioner Galuska. Um, I've, see, uh, I've seen other jurisdictions which um, allow if, if your frontage has street parking that you can count that street parking towards your commercial uses, um, which I, I feel like in the case of that coffee shop would probably make the difference that, you know, typically you can't count. And I, I'm actually fairly loath to count on street parking in general, um, but if the, if, if the applicant builds the frontage improvements and I'll even throw a bone to the public works director if they would maintain them as well, then you could have that street frontage, which is really what the parking people are gonna want for that coffee shop. There's a lot of uh, pedestal development now where, yeah, the place has parking in the garage somewhere, but it's honestly, because of the design, it's like a pain in the neck. And I've also uh, been chewed out by some apartment person who lives in the apartments about how, I'm, what are you doing in here? Like, well, places are supposed to park in here. Um, so, I mean, like, I, th- I think that helps encourage that the commercial uses use that um, and, and have term limited parking, you have two hour parking, you have whatever parking. Um, so th- that's one, one direction we could look at. Um, and I know there's gonna be, a, we, we've talked a lot in the past about just the general parking rates um, and talking about reductions to those. Uh, but I, I think that in addition to looking at counting those uh, street frontages. Um, and as far as counting the on-street parking to count toward your minimums, I believe we've looked at that as an option in the past, and both um, our public works as well as city attorney's office aren't big fans of that approach. We could definitely float that again and see, but generally speaking, they're, a private development is essentially able to look at the public right-of-way in terms of meeting their uh, on-site requirements is sort of how it's been viewed uh, on the other side. And so that's kind of where we, I think one of the reasons we landed at just no parking. Granted, there would still be opportunity here for shared parking. So uh, I think there's a lot of literature out there to show that even if we lifted all of the parking mandates citywide, developers are still going to be building parking. It's just going to be more market driven. And so um, like going back to the case that I was mentioning earlier where there was the small coffee shop, um, you know, they perhaps still could have come up with an option to have some shared parking worked out between the tenant and themselves 
versus just the city coming down with a very prescriptive, you need to provide these spaces separate from everything else. And so it's not to say there won't be on-site parking provided, it's just that we won't be in the business of regulating it. One other thing I want to add is that for larger uses, um, not just these three to four thousand kind of square foot, that that's about the amount that you'd see in a, you know, a building that's 100, 150 units, that kind of bread and butter sort of mid-rise building. Larger buildings or complexes that might have larger tenants, it's very unlikely a developer would not provide some parking just because they recognize they've got big spaces or a, big, a larger amount of total space that they need to obviously um, tenant and in fact um, I've learned from some developers that they'll complain about the city's parking requirement and finds out that their financing the bank ends up being the one that they have to please with the parking and not so much the city so that's an interesting thing in Seattle there's been some places that have gotten rid of parking requirements and certain certainly downtown Pike Pine Corridor near transit station a lot of places don't have parking requirements anymore and they still have parking in the buildings um, and a lot of that's because of the financing I realized I, incur I was excited about street parking too. Do some of those roads, the secondary roads we're talking about, does our right of way kind of design assume that if a new building is built, that there's like a sidewalk and a planning strip and parking? It's going to vary by the street, mm -hmm. uh, street to street. And so we could, you know, that was one of my early comments as we were scoping this amendment early on is that we, you know, once we kind of identify those locations, we do. The next level of analysis and make sure that the street type is going to be conducive to support the land use that we want to have and the, the character and so that's wide sidewalks that's landscaping and on-street parking I think is vital there too and is that an, an alternate path to like where we have to look at like a, and those streets like if you can't change the street right of way technically it's like a, a weird setback where they have to like give you that land as part of that and kind of adjust it, it. Like if there's additional right of way needed yeah. eventually, yeah, that that could be one. I think generally speaking, a, a lot of our right of ways are really wide, even though you know the improved portion isn't always that. But oftentimes there is a lot more real estate there than what it looks. Yeah. Commissioner Brinson, I don't think this is an issue in Shoreline, but I know it's been a long conversation in Seattle. I'm assuming that when we are thinking about childcare, that childcare in the city is primarily happening outside of these mixed-use buildings um, because we have such low-density development generally. But if we get to a place at some point where we start to think about needs for additional childcare centers, they come with very specific sort of development requirements and parking requirements, et cetera. And so that was just sort of in my head when we were talking about no parking at all because you can't build childcare if you don't have drop-off spaces according to state law. So just a thought. Fun facts that are not related too much at all. It's actually a great question though. Andrew, do you know if we allow that as like a, a, a use permitted outright or does it have to be in conditional? Having designed daycare centers for a long time. Most uh, cities you have to do like traffic studies and stuff. Yeah, for us, it depends on the number of kids. And so there's two classifications. I think it's once you get into 12 kids and up, it kicks you into that higher level of use. And so there's a little more review, I think more parking and, and all of that, but yeah. 
<laughs> that's fine. I'm mostly in favor of no parking. Um, I do, I have concern for um, people with disabilities that uh, maybe that for whatever reason they can't take transit um, or some other, um, you know, or part of their, part of the ride in their wheelchair to these newer commercial developments is, you know, bumpy at best. I don't know. It's just um, looking out for the, the disabled community. So um, that's, that's a concern of mine. And I don't have an answer, but um, I, I do, uh, you know, I think about like Seattle. I mean, I think about some of those areas that I travel through on my way to job sites and um, there's, it, it's, it's accessible for, you know, 98.8% of the people, but there is a percentage that it's not accessible to. And there's several of those pockets and um, it would just be something that I would uh, wanna just not, that, that's why I say I'm mostly in favor of no parking. I do have a response to that. Um, you think about where I used to work in Edmonds, <coughs> old downtown Edmonds, there's no parking for the most part right. because they're old buildings and there's a couple that have parking here and there. And so that issue is addressed by every block has a handicapped parking space, you know, at the curb mm -hmm. that is signed and painted on each side so that those businesses know that they have a handicapped space um, that's going to serve that block. So that's something that, you know, as the commercial development uh, grows, that the public works uh, folks may want to analyze, you know, where do we start putting in, uh, and you may already have some, but certainly putting those in as, as right. areas become more urbanized. And that's how the older cities uh, do it. Uh, Snohomish is like that. Mm -hmm. Friday Harbor's like that. And I, there are a lot of uh, the places that are tight, older cities that they don't have parking in each of those right. businesses. Yeah, I've seen that too, and I think that that would be a great thing to look at we can take that up with our parking i think enforcement and 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 public works team to find out you know if they're a provision for that or plan but we're 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 as a city we're entering that stage of or age where we are going to have parking enforcement uh so we'll be thinking more about that on-street parking and I think managing it better, which, again, I think will help this whole conversation where yeah. if it's managed and sort of priced appropriately and, and monitored, we'll have the turnover and the vacancy availability of the spaces, which is, you know, pretty, pretty important for this conversation. And I just want to just add, there's one example in here, and just that one example, lots of meetings, phone calls, emails, and kind of grinding away at it and trying different things and ultimately for nothing and it's just one and in my five years here i can't even tell you how many parking conversations we've had <laughs> oh, and have resulted in not getting what we want because of that you know immovable object and so uh, yeah just not to belabor the point but it gets in the way of a lot of things so, sorry about that so in addition to parking even when we have these multi-use locations, there's a need for drop-off zones. Uh, Uber Eats, 
so when we don't account for those when we are doing those developments for simple drop of staff um, it, it's a challenge yeah so in addition to to, to handicap handicapped spaces I think you also need drop of zones and that's a great point we can get back to you about that too find out what what we can learn from the, the experts on that side of the Okay. Any other comments? Parking. Okay. So far, so good. You guys getting what you need from us? So was the direction there no parking? Okay. The direction Just is no parking. Yes. You're saying Santa Claus is real for us. <laughs> I want to qualify that. We said no parking, but we need accommodation for the disabled, mm -hmm. and we also need to accommodate the kind of commerce that we have where you have drop-offs. It could be Amazon drop-offs, but where you have those drop-offs. So, in other words, we can't say we want it to be livable and attractive and then have amenities and we we lose those basic amenities. Right. Yes. And I'll just say that we have a really responsive and just a great team. You know, the people that work in City Hall are really collaborative. And our traffic engineer, um, when we had a potential tenant for that geo space who asked about, you know, parking looks like it's always taken. And she said, well, that's fine. We can put a sign up. You know, we're not, we won't do it now because there isn't a retail tenant in there. But as soon as they're there, we can have that sign that says two-hour parking or 90-minute parking. You know, hmm. she was just very, we have that flexibility and we have good people on staff who are able to be nimble and respond to those things. And we have a sign out there by the end of the week in order to manage it for the right real uses that we're seeing as they change. So that is a, a benefit. bonuses do you need an explanation again of this one or is it clear it's a little confusing I'm, anybody anybody need a refresher we've talked a lot about height bonuses <laughs> I guess the question I have about the height bonus is did we have a slide in here it was just in our packet that had the neighborhood heights already that had like that chart. Andrew, is that in the packet or is that on the slide? I know I saw it. Is I feel like a lot of our heights are already, our height limits right. are pushing right. what right. code, right. kind right. of building right. code right. would support for what the type of building that we're gonna get right. there. Thank you. Do I, is it, should we just raise the height limit and just tell them this is what we want rather than we, we talk about incentives and bonuses a lot, and they just get confusing. I mean, we could use just different terminology and achieve the same outcome. Uh, yeah, because I feel like every every amendment we bring forward lately is some type of an incentive or bonus, yes. or and so maybe we just say developments providing this type of space. Can, you know the the base height is this, 
and so it's not an incentive. We're not using that terminology. It's the same outcome, but uh, it does, yeah, I hear you. It, it just kind of muddies the waters a little bit. Uh, personally, I'm, I would like to start to move away from incentives and bonuses. If there's things as a city, as a commission, and as a council that you all want to see, then we should just write it into the code, and that should, should just be what it normally is. Normally in our code, it's written like the, base, the height limit is this, and like there's certain appurtenances that can go above it, like solar panels right. and things like that. I'm sorry, I was reading these wrong, too. These are with ATV. I have to do some math real quick. I don't know. I think I would just say the height limit is the height limit. Right. Please put this thing in. But. I agree with a removal of some of those confusing bonuses. Don't get me wrong. But we are a society that always looks for what is in it. <laughs> As that's how we have been raised uh, with all the commercials that we do. What is in it? And what makes really shoreline attractive, it's because we say, this is what you get when you do this. This is what you get when you do this. This is what you get when you do that. That carrot actually works. But the putting together a matrix of what combine the combinations of incentives to get you to where you want to get is mind boggling. So that much I have to say. But it really does work. So I, yeah. I guess the other way to ask the question, so you guys, when you did this, you just said you were asking for 18 feet, and so you did the math originally and said there's going to be 10 and then there's 5. Like, I guess that's my point. Like, should we just increase the height limit 5 feet? Like, because that way you're still getting the four-story building they kind of assumed they were getting, but you're not having to do a complicated arrangement to get there. Right, just to clarify, so yeah, the current language, as you said, is the bonus for eight feet because the requirement is 18, which is nominally eight above what a developer would do if they didn't have to do ground floor commercial. But since we're talking potentially about only 15 feet, only, it's a decent amount, a decent amount 15 feet, we were just trying to equate the bonus or whatever we end up calling it to be five instead of eight. So we could either state bonus or we could say that the base height limit is um, whatever it is, you know, it would be more than one because there's different heights in your zones. But I think the key issue is if it's okay to go from eight down to five if we're going to require only 15 feet versus 18 feet for the height of the ground floor. It's the same math. Mm -hmm. It's like whatever's above 10. Instead of eight above 10, it's five above 10. But then the other issue of, and this then does kind of become a bonus and is not so clearly mappable or whatever, is for grocery store ready space that it would just be case specific. They come in and say we need 20 feet for or Whole Foods or whatever and then you say okay fine you get whatever, ten up to 10 more whatever that is. I guess that was the question I had on the grocery store specifically is like if you think, again if you're thinking in context of the building code there's a finite, I mean it's probably going to be a concrete podium but there's still a finite height like is there another, that's a thing where like we truly wanted a grocery store, is there another incentive we could give them instead of the height? Because that's really a special use that's, the height is predicated on that very special use as opposed to like the general commercial use we can say within anything. And I know I said the hidden bonus is the last one.
you asked for Katie, you picked up the right administrative designer of your <laughs> deviation. I mean, that would be another approach is we identify certain types of uses may extend above the base height through an administrative design review process. It's one additional step. The reality is a lot of these bigger projects go through those anyway. There's oftentimes something they're going to want to depart from, and so this could be one. Commissioner Brinson. So I have a question about the intersection of grocery stores and no parking. <laughs> I just need to say that out loud, right? Because most grocery stores would have parking. And if we're saying no parking, are we assuming that the market and the financing and the tenancy would drive the requirement for structured parking? I mean, I can't imagine a grocery store sort of agreeing to being in a place with no parking. So the market will handle it. The last thing you said was the most important. <laughs> the grocery store, the grocery would store wouldn't agree to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I'm, in downtown Vancouver or something, it'd be fine. But yeah, anywhere else, no. Okay. That's right. That's a good point about the no parking. And I, I think, again, I think it, Seattle could be a current code or an old code. It used to be that a retail space up to like 1,500 square feet or something was exempt. 4,000. 4,000? Was it 4,000? Okay. So maybe we have to put that in there so you don't get like a right. 8,000 right. square feet because that is a lot of people. The, there's a new Safeway mixed-use project being built in my neighborhood on top of Queen Anne right now, and they're providing much more parking than the code would, would require because Safeway required it. As they say, the boys in Oakland require it. <laughs> it's the board, uh, Safeway board is in Oakland. Anybody? Eight to five is eight, eight feet to five feet is good. Grocery stores. I know. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Fitness center allowance. I think I'm hearing you all want to ditch it, correct? Is that the demo? Yeah. Yes. I agree. <laughs> yes. I think if you continue to allow it, you're going to end up seeing like your street has like seven little I know. <laughs> yes. Eliminate. Yes, Commissioner Callahan. You made the point in the staff report about um, how this also raises issues about like shared parking, you know, can that kind of situation work? And this just makes me think like just keep it separate um, and not try to because I, I, I feel like this was sort of like throwing a bone like hey can you do something for the neighborhood um, and it just seems like no we just we need there to be commercial space and that needs to be the lines need to be clear and I think this is just a good example of why that's needed just to be clear for anybody who's listening um, Regular public commercial fitness centers do count. It's just the fitness right. center, fitness, whatever, maybe centers, not the right word, but the fitness uh, room or whatever for the multifamily building doesn't count as commercial. Right. I did actually have a question. And do we, is the, do we in the multifamily 
structures require them to provide an amenity space that this fitness center would meet that requirement? They, yes, yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a fitness center, but yeah, some type okay. of amenity space. But it could still go on the ground floor, just not in the 60%. It just can't count towards that. Okay. Yeah. okay. Was it? Was that the last one? Mm -hmm. I knew we would. <laughs> I wasn't worried. <laughs> so I took the survey. So I have a question. Do we have a chance to amend it? Because I think the one thing that I noticed was on it. It asked about would you like this kind of, but it didn't actually offer like any specifics for type of businesses. So I think that would be interesting, especially if we look at like encouraging developers to build out certain type spaces. Like, what kind of business do you want? So I think it just asked like how often in the time do you leave the city to do like essential things or something. And will we or can we get um, the results of the of this survey and outreach? Yes. At, so at a future we meeting. Have it for the next meeting because it's the day it ends. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of looking to Patrick and Nate in terms of our timeline for the October 5th meeting. Um, I think yeah. we were shooting for some form of first draft amendments to present at that meeting. Um, I don't know if that's still sounding feasible. We'll, we'll aim for that. We're holding the October 19th meeting um, as an if necessary, but you know, I think the direction was pretty solid and clear tonight. And so we'll aim for October 5th and maybe if we don't hit the mark, it'll be October 19th. Um, and related to the survey question, it ends on the 5th, so we probably yeah. won't have the ability to, other than maybe just a high level, we looked at it and it looks like this, but if we do have the 19th, then of course we have a a document to share of what the survey results are and hopefully by then also because I think we're shooting for about that same week for the developer meeting um, so we'll be able to share both of those results uh, if we meet the 19th as well okay excellent yeah, yeah I'm just thinking the staff report would mention that there was a survey <laughs> and then maybe we could show the some mm -hmm. some results on screen but it's just, it's hard for me to figure out how that works. Yeah, one of the things this I've done a lot of these surveys, and um, I think it's a good one. I like your your addition. Um, one of the things is we have a lot of open-ended questions, and those aren't as easy to display because then you might have two hundred different answers, right. and so then you have to do some, you know, word charts or whatever those things are called, or you have to do certain certain things to 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 summarize that versus things that are just all rote yes, no, or multiple choice. You can just show all the little graphs and immediately see the results. So I don't think we can probably have that ready when it's through the fifth of this meeting on the fifth yeah. because it would just be like, uh, we got it. We could say how many people responded, I guess. And, you know, we did get, I think, 30 or 40 responses right away in the first right. 24 or 48 hours. And that was just with us, I think, putting it on our website. And it was announced in currents that it was going to be on the website. But... Uh, and then the chamber, Smalling Chamber of Commerce, put it out to their subscribers, and so we're off to a good start. Mm -hmm. um, that was a few days ago, but I know uh, we started off started strong. Share it on your Facebooks if you want to. <laughs> Great. 
Anybody have any final questions or comments? We all did a very good job on this. And our presenters, uh, Ms. Hoaxman. I'm wondering if um, our speaker could, or our public comment person could go now. She's been emailing me, and so I told her maybe after our presentation and discussion, we'd have a moment for her. Absolutely. Okay. Thank Absolutely. You. Uh, Ms. Chu, you are unmuted. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to check in with the Planning Commission about two dates that are coming up. Um, one is uh, 2030, when um, electric vehicles um, will only be sold. New new, ve new vehicles would only be electric, um, which means that there would be a um, big infrastructure change in terms of people needing to plug in their vehicles overnight. Right now, um, my hybrid takes five hours to charge and it gets 25 miles. Um, so most, and I know like Tesla's that take about maybe two, two and a half hours or so to charge. Um, so I think that there's a big, my perception is there's a big issue with um, buildings, especially multifamily buildings, not having enough um, infrastructure for people to be able to charge their their electrical vehicles, um, especially with 2030 only being seven years from now, and um, and these buildings that they're they're putting up now don't, you know, it'd be ideal for them to start putting them, you know, to have infrastructure for electric vehicle charging for every single vehicle, because in 2035, fossil fuels for vehicles, um, that's the date of when fossil fuels will not will no longer be available for um, vehicles, probably maybe residential vehicles, maybe commercial might be. So I think we need to really start thinking about um, more electric, um, EV chargers or more electrical ports in new buildings and then retrofitting existing buildings. And then the big issue is what about the electrical infrastructure? What about when, um, you know, certain times of day during peak hours when they tell us, you know, don't use a lot of electricity because people might need their air conditioning. How is that going to affect our electrical vehicle charging and the demand of that? Um, I want us to start thinking about that. So um, there's solar panels that people can put on their homes. This is also for residents, people who own their own homes to have um, access to be able access to electricity or some kind of power source to be able to charge their their vehicles and also big multifamily buildings and also work buildings, people were places where people work. So they drive their car to work and then they might need to charge their car so they get back home. Um, I'm not hearing anything about that and it's coming up really quickly. And also with the comprehensive plan that's gonna be for 10 years, um, I haven't heard anything about that. One thing I, um, one possibility is in terms of um, having enough electricity is resiliency so that we never run out of electricity. Um, and one way to do that is batteries, 
backup batteries in all buildings, um, commercial buildings, and also in um, homes. So I understand that there's um, some grants that Shoreline might be able to apply for um, from the Department of Energy and the Department of Commerce to fund resiliency um, of batteries for buildings and also if we can put some provisions um, regarding these these up and coming dates into the master plan of and for new, especially for new buildings and then retrofitting them maybe applying for grants to retrofit the buildings as well and providing programs so that every single person can charge their vehicle overnight um, when they come home and also for businesses. Ms. Chu, That's it, thank Chu. you. Oh, uh, Ms. Chu, would you please for the um, commission say your name and oh, yeah. your um, this city is, of residence? Oh, this is Nataline Chu and I live in Shoreline at the, in the um, Echo Lake neighborhood. Thank you. Thank you. All right, and thank you, gentlemen, very much. That was a great discussion. Thank you for all the information. All right, moving on. We are at unfinished business. Is there any unfinished business tonight? New business tonight. Anybody have any reports? Mr. Bauer. Um, I just have one announcement. Um, there's a, a groundbreaking ceremony that's in the works tentatively. Um, oh, I wrote it down somewhere. I think it's um, October 4th being planned. Um, this is a tentative date up in North City at the mixed use site that we were just talking about. Um, with the ground floor fitness level, but um, at <laughs> any rate, more. yes, plus more, yep, um, with the restaurant ready space as well, which will be, you know, a big win and the first project going through with the ground floor commercial requirements that the commission studied a couple of years ago. Um, so stay tuned for more details, but yeah, um, it sounds like we'll have potentially some council members or council member at the event and would love to have um, some planning commission representation as well. So once we know more, we'll send it out to you all. Excellent, thank you. Anybody else? Um, the agenda for the next meeting. Could, oh, I'm sorry, Miss. Um, I have Commissioner a Ransom. random, maybe unfinished business okay. comment that I just received. Um, related to the public comment we just received. Seattle City Light is looking at EV charging stations across their entire service territory, not just the city of Seattle. So they are thinking about things up here as well, since they are our electricity provider. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Real-time information. <laughs> I like it. Um, I know we've seen it on the screen and we've had it in our staff report, but what is the agenda for the next meeting? Yeah, so the next, uh, next meeting will be uh, discuss, discussion of the 2024 comprehensive plan update. So we'll be briefing the commission on uh, a couple of alternatives for a draft vision statement. 
as well as updating you on kind of what we've been working on since we were last before the commission. We have a strategy mapped out for the next wave of engagement and we'll be uh, briefing you on the racial equity analysis that was done as part of the middle housing work uh, last spring and first part of the summer. So a lot of updates on the 24 update um, and then also potentially the ground floor commercial, but we'll see. Um, and if not, we'll be looking at the October 19th meeting for that to bring this topic back to you. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? Any last words? Thank you, everybody. Great work. Thank you. Thank you. We are adjourned.